First Samuel will begin a new series in First and Second Samuel as well. We'll, we'll head right to there, and we're done with this. I have, as I said last week, I have no, <laughs> I have no idea how long it will take us. It'll be longer than a few weeks. I'll say that. It'll, it'll be, it'll be a while. Uh, today's title uh, of First Samuel uh, one one through um, nineteen. Uh, I'm sorry, we're going to go 1 through 20 here, uh, is true worship of a covenant-keeping God. And I want to say today I'm going to hit on a few um, kind of background things as we begin, uh, both before we read and after we read. It's important to know where we are located in the Holy Scripture and a little about uh, narrative history. This is a different type of book than we covered in Romans and before that in Ecclesiastes and before that, I, I think we were in Ephesians before that if I remember correctly. Uh, This is a story, and it is a story about the kingdom of God, the people of God building and seeking a house for God. It is a story of God, it is God's story in the midst of mankind striving against God. It is God's story of how he built a kingdom in spite of often the wicked motives of even his own people of the compromise of his own people. It is a story of the kingdom and the worship of God that will not fail. And God and his sovereign power and workings on the earth will have his way. He will establish his kingdom. Often when it seems the most bleak. In 1 Samuel, one of the questions that we're going to ask is, not is there a kingdom, but who is in the kingdom? Who will acknowledge and who will come under the reign of God? Who will worship God, not only obey his laws, but worship him with their heart? See, God would have us not just have a physical kingdom, a kingdom of laws to protect against our enemies, but a kingdom that would penetrate the heart and soul. In this we will see in 1 Samuel, we will see the spiritual MRI MRI of two different kings. The first would be Saul. The first king, the people's choice. He was the tallest and the most handsome man in the land. He had all the pedigree of the celebrity look. He had all the things that the world values. And yet, God was present and yet Saul never allowed God to truly reign in his heart. God never conquered his heart. He gave into his heart and his fears every single time to devastating consequences for his people. We'll see a contrast with David, who was God's choice, not just the people's choice, and who won the battles of the heart, who repented unto the Lord and who served him. So we're going to see this monarchy, Israel become a nation of just tribal um, relations to now the centralized nation. But in and under and throughout, the question is going to be asked, who is the true worshiper? Who is the true Israelite? Not the one who looks like an Israelite, not the one who has land or circumcision or the right family, but who is the true worshiper of God? And here, in 1 Samuel, the beginning of this mighty story, we find an obscure 
Israelite woman, Hannah, who sets the tone for the rest of the book. So let's stand for the reading of God's holy word. Page 266. There was a certain man of Ramathiam, Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Joraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The one was named Hannah, and the other, Penaniah. And the name of the other, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children. But Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year after year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion. Because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, verse 8, her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more than... To you then ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow, saying, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant, And remember me, and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of the great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. 
This ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. A little background. First and second Samuel. Yeah, that's a good name, isn't it? I saw you look up when I read that. First and second Samuel were originally one book. Not until the 15th century were they separated. So not until more the modern translations. They were originally one book. And they were only separated, not because of some difference in the book, but simply because of length and weight. The uh, scribes would have to carry around scrolls, and First and Second Samuel was a mighty large scroll, so they separated to make it just easier to carry. We don't know who the writer was, and we do know that it was written in the 10th century BC. So, now when you think 10th century, that is 3,000 years ago, probably sometime after David's death, between 1080 BC and 970 BC. So, again, remember it when. B.C., before Christ, we count backwards. This would have been a thousand years before Christ. Now we count forwards in A.D. Um, So this would have been 3,000 years ago. The period, and this is what's crucial, this is during the time of the judges. In fact, this will end the time of the judges. Now, you know anything about the time of judges? The time of judges was the time after Moses and Joshua had died, after they had inherited the land, And what should have been a great time of prosperity and the structuring of worship was actually the opposite. It was possibly the darkest time in Israel's history. Judges 17.6 and 21.25 says this, In those days there was no king and everyone did as he saw fit. And if you ever want to see a land or a nation or a people, you wonder what it is like if there's no law that's followed there's no centralized worship that none of the churches are faithful. Where the priests are all corrupt. And you want to know what happens? You read the book of Judges. In some ways it was very similar to today. Where we might call today in the postmodern world the rise and triumph of the modern self. Where I will not obey any law nor listen to anything based on its own lawful merits, but only that which I want, or only that which I feel. Where the authority is in self, and when it's in self, it becomes in what my appetites are and my feelings. You know that in this modern era, we've seen a great breakdown of marriage, a great increase of wickedness, even in the laws of our land. And in a nation where we've never had a king, but we had a law. We call it Lex is king. The law is king. And there were certain expectations of the law. In the last 60 years, we've seen much like the time of Judges. In those days, there was no king. There was no law. And everyone did as he saw fit. This type of thinking, which is really opposed to God, leads to moral compromise. And it leads to self-destruction. And ultimately, it leads to a vulnerability from one's enemies. The expositor's Bible commentary and for Samuel says this, what they had in the time of Judges was a dreary cycle of rebellion, retribution, repentance, restoration, and then rebellion. And it's repeated over and over again throughout the book. 
which is in many aspects rehearses the darkest days of Israel's history. So the people would rebel, the nations, the foreign enemies would come in, they would cry out for a deliverer, God would send a deliverer, and again, when we hear the word judge, we often, we, we don't think about today's judges that would, you know, wear robes and they would sit in a, you know, a courthouse and they would kind of decide cases based on the merits of law. No, these judges were much more like Marvel comic type judge, you know, they would come in like Batman, right? They would be the judge, but they themselves would be, they would be the hammer of destruction. They would come in with retribution, okay? So they were, they were much more, um, like the great warriors of the time. They represented God. They would defeat God's enemies. The people would be happy for a while, and then they would rebel and sin again. And the cycle would repeat over and over again. And the culture rotted out. And we remember that this is not some foreign land. To sober us, this is Israel. This is God's people. They had the covenant, the promises of the covenantal blessings and cursings. Deuteronomy 27, Joshua 1.8, Joshua 23.6, they had the book of law to obey. They had seen generations of a repeated cycle of rebellion, punishment, repentance, and rebellion again. And at the time of 1 Samuel, this needed to end. Their land was a mess. Their culture was a mess. And they were starting to cry out, and we're going to get a preview, but we'll see in coming weeks, not merely for another judge, but they wanted a consolidated power. They wanted a king like the nations had. The decentralized system of worship and the confederation of loosely held tribes was not the strength they needed. They were dependent upon the whims of the local leaders. Instead, they were looking for a permanent deliverer. They were desperate for more than a judge. They wanted a king. A king would... His family would be established. He would have a permanent seat of power, absolute power, consolidated power. They needed a strong leader who would uphold and enforce God's law amongst the people, would protect their borders and defeat their enemies. Now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is it a good thing to want a king? Or is it a bad thing to want a king? Well, that, my friends will be answered in a later sermon. But that's the background of where we're at. And so therefore, what a strange and surprising start to a story about a unified eventual temple, unified worship, and a consolidation of kingly power. A fight of these reign of kings. What a strange story to begin the story about the kingdom of God and the monarchy of Israel. Verse 1 again, there was a certain man, his name is Ephraim, or from Ephraim, whose name is Elkanah. Now the important information we have here is he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of other, Penaniah. Or Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Elkanah had two wives. Uh-oh. Why did he have two wives? And these are always these strange things that we hit when we hit the Old Testament. We do a Bible read-through. is all these multiple wives situations, these polygamy situations. A few things about the background of polygamy. 
Now, generally speaking, both in Israel and in the other ancient places, monogamy was generally practiced. But not where polygamy was immediately beneficial. It may have been frowned upon, but it was accepted by the culture, particularly in rural settings. The main occurrence of polygamy would be when, A, the first wife was barren, but also when there was an imbalance of the number of males and females in a family, there was a need to produce large numbers of children to work the fields and the herds. Often polygamy happened in wealthier families uh, who wanted to had a huge amount of inheritance and they needed multiple children to, 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 to pass it on to the next generation. So we presume here that Elkanah was a, was a well-off man or at least a, um, um, you know, had, had, did, yeah, did well for himself. Polygamy also happened was there was a desire to increase wealth. And polygamy happened when there was a rate of death for females in childbirth. So, is polygamy accepted or unaccepted? Does God condemn it? Does he support it? Does he have no opinion about it? Now, when you read through the Bible, a strange thing happens. It appears at times... Like God is kind of nonchalant about polygamy. But is he? In 1 Corinthians 10, 11, when you're in your Bible, when you're reading through that, underline that verse. That's a crucial verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, Now these things, and he's talking about the Old Testament, happen as an example. They were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. And often we see in 1 Corinthians 10, they are an example of what not to do. Bill Arnold writes in his commentary on 1 Samuel, he says there's a principle of interpreting Scripture. It is called, Scripture gives us a show or a tell. Remember this. Oh, this is extremely helpful. The epistles, like Romans, which are a letter, are telling us what to believe. What is right, what is wrong. The Ten Commandments tell us what to do. While the history sections and often the poetic sections of the Bible and the apocalyptic sections are showing us, they are a living commentary. There's an implicit telling, but showing us through the lives and events what we are to do and what happens when we compromise the truth. So does God condemn polygamy? Well, remember in Genesis 1, God creates, and then tells us the norms of what we are to do. There is a covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. They're to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. In Exodus 20, we are told not to commit adultery. It presupposes we believe one man and one woman, and certainly when we get to the New Testament, you know, any sort of... um, Sexual immorality, adultery, a man having his father's wife is is certainly condemned. So what happens in between? Well, we might say under that show and tell principle, the rest of the Bible shows us the consequences. Now, the author for Samuel could have said, Elkanah had two wives. And by the way, remember in Exodus and remember in Genesis why that's forbidden. But instead, often like we see in the stories of Genesis and in David and onward, what are we shown by this? 
Was this a good thing or a bad thing? No, it was culturally acceptable. But what were the long-term consequences? And friends, there's a principle here. We often think, we like to think that God, either God is uninvolved in our lives or God owes it to us to immediately, if we do something wrong, to tap us on the head and say, knock it off or send a lightning bolt to just warn us and have us in. But often, in our lives, we live our lives by wisdom and foolishness. And the Bible warns us as Christians, you know, um, you will reap what you sow. And though we don't immediately reap some of the consequences, do we long term? Remember Adam and Eve, they didn't immediately die. They just saw they were naked and they were ashamed. But eventually death came. And the Bible in the Old Testament shows us the consequences of the violation or the reimagining of the covenant of dominion and marriage in Genesis 1 and 2. Even when it seems to make immediate political or practical sense to have two wives, there is a consequence long term. Particularly, the Old Testament narratives are a living commentary. A story of what happens when Genesis 1 and 2 is followed and what happens when it's compromised. We know this. Divorce. The ending of marriage. Can God forgive? Certainly. Can he bring healing, redemption, and forgiveness, peace, and even kindness? Certainly. But there is always scars. And you cannot protect others from some of the fallout. If you've been part of a family, extended family, there's divorce and remarriages. You know what that's like at holidays. There's... There's always a certain scar that happens. And even when you make peace, there's certain reminders of the brokenness of that covenant. A couple years ago, my son, one of my son's Christian came to me. and We're, He does a Bible read through every year. Um, and he came and asked me, we were both, I don't know what we were reading, First Samuel, maybe we were in Genesis. And he said, Dad, why did God allow multiple wives? That's always a hard question, right? Because you expect God to immediately like strike him dead for that, right? In the Bible. I said, I don't know. Why do you think? And he said, well, it never went well for them and for their children, did it? Pretty good insight. You cannot have God on your terms. God wired us in such a way that there is blessings for obedience and consequences for disobedience. Or we might say, there are consequences even when the immediate benefit seems practical and good. God wired the world in such a way that living by his means, even when it doesn't always make sense, will always bring about the the blessedness. God knows. Leah and Rachel, Sarah and Hagar, David's wives, every single time there's polygamy, there's a rivalry. And there's division in the home. And their children, not only do they not like each other, but they often hate each other. Why? Because there's a rivalry within the home. A divided house. And so Elkanah had two wives. And here we see what were the necessary consequences of this? There was a divided home. Penaniah, she had the blessings of children. 
God gave her this. And yet within this, we also see there's a division not only within the home. So they go up and, 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 and they all go up. And what would happen in this time was, um, this is probably about 15 miles from their home. They would go up. This is one of the feasts that they would go to. We don't know exactly what feast, probably the Feast of Tabernacles. And they would offer the sacrifices under the priest, the high priest. Eli was there. He's a descendant of Aaron. And uh, they would go up. And then as part of the feast, or as part of the sacrifice, they would have a great feast. It wasn't just a somber time. It was a joyous time. And Elkanah, to his credit, he was probably Hannah was his first wife. And once she, he determined she was barren, he married Penaniah. And he loved Hannah. He loved her. And so to his credit, he wanted to demonstrate his love. So he gave her a double portion. Well, did that sit well with his other wife? Of course not. And I want you to notice here in one sense, there's an implicit observation we make. Now, Penaniah had the blessings of God. She had children. She had a loving and caring husband. She had a good and prosperous home. You know, what does she focus on during the feast? On the blessings she had? Or no, she's not a happy woman. Her worship is not a true worship of God. Even though she had God's blessings, she had not the joy of the Lord. And we see that demonstrated, right? She lives vicariously through others. There is a darkened heart in her. She imagined a little glow of light by reveling in the failures of others. Now notice the abject cruelty here, the pettiness. Covering her own emptiness. Comparison spirituality, we might call it. That she who would not have a right relationship with God would feel better about herself by comparing herself to Hannah. Friends, you can always find somebody with a worse experience that you can compare yourself to. Or somebody with a better experience that you can get jealous over. But notice at the time of the feast, what does she do? Instead of showing compassion to Hannah, she finds little ways of jabbing and making a rivalry with her and reminding her that she's cursed. Perhaps Elkanah doesn't help. Perhaps giving Hannah a double portion, though meant to show compassion, created more of a rift between Penaniah and Hannah. And again, as we see, polygamy always led to division. Always. Seeing that Hannah was unhappy, Elkanah possessing a fixed skull and probably not much peripheral vision, here we see in this verse, tries to make up for her. Seeing how unhappy he was by reminding her how blessed she was to have him. Right? And young husbands, this is a good reminder. This is probably not one of those things in the Bible I think the author put in there just to remind us men, this is something you, you don't say. How lucky am I? How lucky are you? What a stud muffin you have married. Better than ten sons. Who needs an inheritance when you have moi? Correct? We don't know what Hannah's reaction was, but it wasn't happiness. We can say that. And notice, but in spite of this, he, he meant well, didn't he? But he can't relate. He has children. He has those who will share in his inheritance. And they have a divided home, but she does not. She is destitute. She is completely dependent on him. And Penaniah's children aren't going to help her out at all. 
So this is one lonely woman. Now, in today's day and age, in much of this Gnostic evangelical culture, it would be very tempting for us to say, well, Hannah, you have God. Why would you need children? Maybe you're making an idol out of your desire for children. Maybe you just want children too much. Maybe children are just optional. But friends, that is not how the scripture defines the normalness of this. In fact, in nowhere is Hannah's sorrow here seen as sinful. Women are meant to have children. Marriage is a blessing. It is a good desire. I want you to hear that, young people, as you grow up and young women. You are not meant to live with children or family being optional. You're meant to grow up and get married and have children. This is the way that God created the world. And the blessing of that is you actually already know one of your great purposes in life. And for you young men, you're not to grow up going, man, you know, someday maybe I'll have kids after I've lived a little bit. No. You're to grow up and learning to be responsible now. Learning to be attractive to a spouse because of your character. And women learning to take care of a home and all these things. And children are a blessing. It is the normative way in which God has blessed us. And so the question here is not, maybe God cursed, but actually it says the Lord had cursed her. He had left her barren. You know this, that there is much joy, but also much sorrow with children and lack thereof. You know, if you are a person who's ever lost a child, or you know somebody who's had one of their offspring tragically taken from them, or maybe they've raised them in the Lord and they are rebellion in rebellion against God, you know there is a pain that is constantly present. It is a daily prayer for you. You walk at the limp. You look back and you go, well, I've ever had children if I'd know this pain. Well, of course you would have, because that's the way God had created you. But you walk at the limp. And Hannah, to be cursed by God by in barrenness was indeed not a temporal sorrow for women. But as I've already said, what were her prospects for the future? Who would care for her? Would her husband continue to support and love his barren wife? As she got older and couldn't contribute. This is similar to Naomi in the book of Ruth. How destitute she would have been. As the family gatherings were celebrated. It was a constant reminder of her loneliness. What had she done to deserve this? I'm sure she had asked the question. What had I done? And here there's no indication she had done anything. That compared to. Penaniah, who deserved children? Hannah or the compromised cruel woman? And sometimes, friends, God's sovereignty can seem mysterious, even cruel. Is that not what the psalmist says when he said, I almost envied the wicked? I've done things the right way and I suffer and they've done things the wrong way and they prosper. Right? You seen that? You search and you say, Lord, is there something I've done? And there is a time to search and say, is there a lifestyle I'm living that is keeping me from 
the Lord's blessing. Well, certainly there's a question for that, but for Hannah, it was not that. She had been a faithful woman all along. She didn't say, I'm going to stay home from the feast because I don't want to be reminded of my sorrow. No, she went to worship the Lord. Perhaps, friends, she is not cursed. But perhaps God, in this temporal time, it's a trial for her. Perhaps God has greater plans through her humility and her suffering. In affliction, unanswered prayers, all alone, constant reminders of the blessings of others, which have eluded her. Was she under God's curse? Here's a question for you today. Will you continue to worship God even when things are difficult? Even when some of your prayers have not been answered in the ways you want? Even when you were rejected? Even through hardship? Even through difficulty, right? We, when you get married, you, we, we give those vows that say, I promise you with you, in better or worse, sickness or health, Rich or poor, death to us part, the presumption wears, the covenant is kept throughout. Whenever I do marriages for young couples, I say, look, right now everything's happy, but a year from now it might not be. But you are to be committed to each other through all these things. And will you keep your commitments to the Lord? Or when things are difficult, will you be distracted? by endless social media, by the successes of others. Notice this, she doesn't distract herself. She doesn't ask the priest for an antidepressant or some other way to numb the pain. She faces God, Coram Dale. And in fact, what she does here is to such the extent that Eli, the high priest, thought, and probably rightfully so, that she was a drunk woman. Here, her true piety, her love of God and commitment to worship alone stood as a contrast. Probably many in those days went through the motions. This is the time of Judges. And a true godly woman was rare indeed. Eli, in his upper 80s, an elderly man, had seen much apostasy and fake Christianity, we might call it in those days. Such as she, he presumed she was just like any of the rest of them. Going through the motions with phony tears, or maybe she was drunk and high or something else. But yet, what was she doing? Verse 11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your servant and remember me and forget not your servant, but will indeed give your servant a son, Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And she continued praying before the Lord, and Eli observed her mouth. What is she doing? Well, not merely is she praying, but she made a vow to the Lord. Now, ironically, lest we think that vows are merely an archaic Old Testament um, type covenant with the Lord, all of our old confessions, the 1689, has a whole section on vows and oaths. It's the most surprising section in that because we don't often think about this today. But lawful oaths and vows are part of religious worship. 
Traditionally, Christians at times, it would be special, but they might make a vow to the Lord to say, I promise to give. I mean, in one way, we, 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 when we tithe, we vow to the Lord, right? We, we say, I promise and commit uh, to give my, my first offering, first 10% or, or more than that possibly to the Lord. That's my commitment to him. I vow that. When we do a marriage, we, we take a marriage vow. Maybe we might actually call it a marriage oath. But a vow was a special commitment to the Lord to say, Lord, if you do this, I promise that this is what I will give in return. We see those type of vows when people go into the mission field. But it's well to think about. Those are not forbidden things in Scripture. In fact, up until modern times, they were a normative part of acceptable worship within the church that people would make vows to the Lord. And here, the vow was the Nazarite vow. Samson, his mother, who was also barren, had had a similar vow. There'd be another one in the New Testament. The Nazarite vow. This is a vow under true worship, a commitment, an integrity, and a specific request that her child, if God would give her a child, he would be consecrated to the Lord. He would belong to the Lord. She would not cut his hair to demonstrate that this was a certain type of commitment. Now, what do we see here? What's the, what do we learn from here? What is the implicit nature? What is God? Why does he have this in Scripture? I think today we have a propensity to think of one side of God's sovereignty. That we are passive and that he is active. Combine this with the contemporary moralistic therapeutic deism that's in our culture today, in our evangelical culture, where God is there basically as a, a far-off being. He's, he's there to tell us how to live morally. He wants us to have our best life now, but otherwise he's there to be our therapist. Along with the psychologized self of our world today and an increasing cynicism, we can easily accept fate from God. And accept, as Hannah might have done, well, that's just the way that God has done things. So just accept it as it is its fate. But no. Do we expect blessings from the Lord? Is God a God who loves to bless our people? Meaning this, is he not just a God who's fatalistic and says, well, shame on you, you've got to try this and try this, but do you pray to the Lord? What God have us do is Hannah does, and actually, when there's difficulty, when there's sorrows, when things seem impossible, do you call out to the Lord? Do you pray? Is he an active God who loves to bless his people? There's a truth that God alone is the initiator and the mover. Obviously, that's true. But the Bible doesn't present God as merely a uninvolved, foreign, Ruler who rules through his ambassadors, who sends down, you know, keeps keeps the uh, keeps the the wheels of time moving. Our God made a covenant with His people, and our God is active in our lives. His relationship with His people is a real and giving relationship. 
We need to think in terms of covenant. God is a living God who made a covenant with his people. And the blessings and curses were dependent upon their obedience. God answers prayer. It glorifies him to give his people their requests. And if you're in difficulty today, are you praying specifically for that to end? Will you pray to the Lord and ask the Lord to grant your requests? I mean, we like to think, of course we do, but do we? James 1 says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask by faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea and is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose he receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, 35, 3 through 5, 37, 3 through 5. Trust the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. How about this? James 2 says, You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not ask because you do not, you do not have because you do not ask, and you do not you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Do you believe that our God is a God who's a covenant-keeping God and He loves to bless people? Do you believe that you can ask God for the things that He promises to give? Marriage, children? Is this good to ask the Lord for? Is it good to ask the Lord to bring the salvation of your children? Right? All those covenantal things He's promised. Is it good to ask the Lord for increase? To give these things? The Bible warns us sometimes we don't have these because we don't ask for them. We presume and it, it demonstrates a low view of God or actually an unbelief in the Lord. Or we've just read all those theology books which just talk about, well, you, you know, you, God doesn't change his mind, so, you know, prayer is always about God has already determined ahead of time. Well, there's truth to that. But that's not how the Bible presents our relationship with God. He's, the Bible presents it as prayer changes things. So ask the Lord to change his favor. Ask the Lord as Hannah did. In fact, if we see here twice in Scripture, it says that she was cursed by God in her barrenness, and she asked the Lord to change that. And here... There are hopes, hints of hope and favor to come. Is it not often, friends, in our lives that when a person honestly acknowledges their sin, their need, and is specific their request that things change? Is it often when we get to our lowest that the Lord is pleased because that's when true worship begins to happen? That's when our prayer requests are often without exceptions and qualifications and in Half-baked requests, but are real and specific? Is that not what we see in Isaiah when it says, even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will do what? Will renew their strength. Isn't that not when the psalmist said, I was, I was weary with the prosperity of the wicked. And what did he do? He went to the Lord. Instead of being cynical, unbelieving, angry at God, He said, God, you know, and you know my need. And I will call upon you, and I will vow to you. And I will continue as Hannah did. I will continue to serve you. How many would blame Hannah, in fact, in a culture acceptable time today? Well, I just don't feel like going to church, so I'm not going to go. Or I've got sorrow, or I've got 
bitterness or, you know, I don't want to go because I don't want to be reminded of the blessings of others. And so I'm just going to stay away. Well, Hannah didn't stay away, did she? She knew that Penn and I would probably mock her again. It went on year after year. She knew she would be sorrowful. And yet her worship was a true worship of God. This was not some phony made up thing. And friends, often in scripture, this is the pattern we see again and again. God loves to bless the destitute. He loves to do surprising things. He loves to answer requests. But he would ask, have them ask us in humility. And he loves to bless, but the blessings come when we are humble and honest before the Lord. Perhaps God doesn't immediately beam down an answer. But when we are honest before the Lord and humble, our eyes are open to the kindness in the midst of sorrows. So commit your way to the Lord. Keep coming to church, serving. Spend time in your word daily, now more than ever. Don't be distracted by the news cycles or the endless negativity or the cynicism or the whatever is popular, but continue to commit your way to the Lord. And ask and ask and ask. God has no time for the half-hearted prayers of the arrogant and proud, but He loves to bless the prayers of the humble. Those who know that only the Lord can change their fortunes. And here, look at this. Before the prayer is even answered in the way that God answers, her fortunes start to change. Here the high priest, Eli, takes notice. And he's won over by her piety, by her commitment. Here with this elderly high priest, she finds true fellowship. With the highest spiritual leader in the nation, he takes notice over this godly woman. And normally, we find that she might have to pay a fee to receive a blessing, but Eli foregoes any material requirements, any payment for his services, and he blesses her, seeing her integrity and commitment. Look at verses 19 through 21 as we draw to conclusion. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, for the God of Israel grants your petition that you made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, her face no longer sad. And what great blessing it is when two people who both know the worship of the Lord can encourage one another like this. And they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah's wife. And the Lord remembered her. Verse 20, And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel and she said, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So the story of 1 Samuel is both the story of a divided house and also a united house. The individual homes might be divided like Elkanah's, but there would be a united house around the worship of God, such as we see with Hannah and Eli. For God is a covenant-keeping God, and he remembered her. Romans 8.28 says, All things work of for the good of those who love him, and what? Keep his commandments. So why is this story in the Bible, particularly here, before we get to all the geopolitical turmoil that was going on in the land? Well, this is a beautiful story, as was the story of Ruth and Naomi. 
This is about a kingdom. But it's not merely about the geography and the battlements and all the laws and rules and battles. It is about the battle of the heart. It is about the true subjects of the king. It is about those who have a heart for God. It is also the story of God's faithfulness and his kindness to his people. Psalm 113.9 He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. He settles the barren woman in her home as a joyful mother of children. And here is the preview of the true kingdom where God reigns outwardly and inwardly. Here is the true worshiper, the one in whom God is reigning, the one whom God blesses. So today, friends, repent to the Lord, petition the Lord, remind God of his promises. True prayer will only be accompanied by true practice of Christianity. Call on the Lord, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, as he did for Hannah. For prayer changes things. And God loves to bless his people. And many years later, another baby would be born. Not of a, well, of a formerly barren woman, but a woman who shouldn't have had children. This baby was placed in the womb by the Holy Spirit. And God chose this woman, just normal, small town woman, This baby was consecrated to the Lord. And he lived a perfect and sinless life. He would be the true king, the Messiah. He would be under the line of the kings of Israel. And he would be the king, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world. And he is bringing all under his reign. And to worship him, he is defeating all the, the nations of God, or all the enemies of God. But first, he must defeat the greatest enemy that you know, and that is your own heart. That is your own soul. So believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. Call upon his name and he will answer you. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for this beautiful story. And Lord, I I pray, God, that you would, Father, speak to us as a covenant-keeping God. Help us to believe your word, repent to you and trust in you. And God, will you help us to call out to you with specific prayer requests? And will you answer them? Thank you for this story and that the story is part of your holy scripture for us today. Thank you that you are a God who keeps covenant with his people to a thousand generations and that we know the true King Jesus. May you receive our worship today in your name. Amen.